But please join me with the reading of God's word at this moment. We'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. That's Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. But let us pray before reading God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you without the pretense of our own righteousness because you have given to us the righteousness of Christ. And in his ministry of, as mediator, we come before your holy presence. We ask as we, as an act of worship, as we elevate your word in our hearts and minds, we ask that you may give us the grace to grow in your word. We also ask that those who have not come to faith and repentance, that you may bring them through the preaching of your word. So it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. This is God's very own word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that you need what, what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Last week we began this series on the Lord's Prayer and spent time considering the opening verses of this chapter and the first words of the Lord's Prayer in which Christ warns us against the hypocritical way we publicly might express our faith, particularly when praying. So therefore, as a result of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Christian prayer is uniquely evangelical, and the ultimate goal of prayer is essentially having a passion for seeing God's glory magnified. 
It is to plead that the glory of his holy name be lifted up in our lives and in the world. In his commentary on the Lord's Prayer to the English Puritan, Matthew Pulse says that wherever we pray, we must take heed that our ends be right, that the glory of God be our principal end, and yielding obedience to his command. With this thought in mind this evening, uh, let us take a closer look at the opening of this prayer. In the Lord's uh, Prayer, we find a treasure trove that helps us live out, as Calvin has described it, the essence of the Christian life. In other words, Christians are a prayerful people. The Lord's Prayer is primarily a model or a pattern for Christian prayer that provides thoughtful and meaningful guidance as we seek to honor God in our lives. However, we can also use it as our own individual personal prayer. So let us take a look once more at verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The first observation we can make is that the Lord's prayer teaches us that it is the pathway to true intimacy with God. We see this exemplified in the life of Christ. For example, on one occasion, a search party had been conducted by the disciples because they did not know where Jesus had gone. So we discover that in Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 35, that Christ had risen very early in the morning while it was still dark. He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. He had gone out to pray Alone. This speaks to how deeply personal prayer was to Christ. We see this also exemplified not only among numerous examples in the New Testament where he goes to pray alone, but we also see this exemplified through his speech in this passage of Matthew. Notice in verse 1, he tells the disciples, Your Father. Again, in verse 8, he says, your father. This expression is prominent throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Note that it is found three times in chapter 5. Verse 16, your father. Verse 45, your father. Verse 48, your father. I point this out because we must appreciate how radical this filial language is to this particular Jewish audience. There is not one text in the Old Testament that identifies a specific person, a specific individual as a child of God. So we see how he stresses the importance Or we see the importance that it has for Christ. It was so significant for Christ that he says it 11 times in chapter 6 of Matthew. Again in verse 4. 
your father who sees in secret will reward you. And he says it twice in this very verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in, who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. This verse points us to the truth that the secret to intimacy with God is secret prayer. In other words, private, solitary prayer is the pathway to intimacy with God. But notice that this verse comes with a promise. Your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. As I had mentioned previously, Christ stresses the personal intimacy with the Father, with the first words of this prayer. But he also adds a qualifier in this chapter. In verses 14, 26, and 32, he says to his disciples, and he says to us as well, Your heavenly Father. We need to ask ourselves, what is the reward that awaits us there in the secrecy of prayer? What form does this promise take? I believe it's answered in the context of when the disciples at one time asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. This is found in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. And in that chapter, you will notice that he's teaching them about petitionary prayer and how the Father welcomes petitionary prayer. Notice the language of filial relationship, what what the Father has among you. Sorry, notice the language of filial relationship in that chapter of Luke, chapter 11, verses 11 to 13, where it says, What father among you, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? See, Christ in this prayer is looking forward to the cross to accomplish the work of salvation on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. He's looking forward to His resurrection. He's looking forward towards His ascension to the Heavenly Father's right hand in anticipation of the massive and the worldwide redemptive outpouring of the Holy Spirit who was going to be sent out to efficaciously apply the work of Christ into your heart and mine. And we see the beginning of this great work in Acts chapter 2 where it records Peter, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost In that verse 32 of that chapter, this Jesus, God raised up. 
and awe, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So therefore, the promise and the reward is a heavenly reward given by the, our heavenly Father. The reward is the Father himself being present in prayer through the spirit of sonship, through the spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption invites us into his presence. He's the reward. Secondly, the Lord's, the Lord's prayer is instructive in that it demonstrates the fatherhood of a heavenly father who teaches us to pray with reverence. Verse 9. Our Father who art in heaven. This is where God's eminence or God's nearness meets his transcendence. Emmett Clowney stated that those two syllables, our Father, those two syllables on the lips of Jesus arch over the history of redemption. And we see that in the Garden of Eden where God creates and brings the first humanity close to him, near him. But at the same time, he is transcendent. He is above all creation. This is where God's eminence meets his transcendence. Clowning goes on to say, Jesus puts Abba on the lips of those who trust in him, for he bought their birthright, with his blood. So how do we maintain how do we maintain this apparent tension of God's imminence, God's nearness and transcendence in prayer? James Barr had written an article back in the 70s in the Journal of Theological Studies. And the title of this article was Abba isn't daddy. Apparently it had become popular to translate the word Abba, which is an Aramaic term, as daddy. So he sought to correct this. And what he found in his research was that the Aramaic term Abba was used both by children and adults to address their father. But he found also that the term was an affectionate term. But at the same time, it was a respectful term. You see, and what he noticed that in Greek, there is a diminutive form of the word father already. But the writers did not deem it to describe the father in that terms, daddy, or the diminutive form of that term. So when used for God, it is always followed Bar noticed, it is always followed by the Greek word pater. Three times in the New Testament, Mark 14, 36, Romans 8, 15, and Galatians 4, 6. 
This is to say that it should be a caution. It should be a caution. And what we should be reminded of, of a saying that familiarity, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. That is to say that with extensive knowledge of someone or something in a familiar way, we tend to lose respect for them. And Abba, Father, guards us against approaching God irreverently while maintaining the sense of intimacy. We should address him as dear father or dearest father. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is instructive on this point, question 100. What does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence as children to a father. Clowney comments on this point. He says the caricature of the father in television comedies ill prepares our culture to understand the term as Jesus uses it. The father was the Lord of the patriarchal family. And when God is called father in the Bible, his lordship is always in view. Jesus prayed, I thank thee, O father, Lord of heaven and earth. So we see that real prayer can be destroyed by sentimentality. And this takes us to our last teaching from this passage. Lastly, the fatherhood of a heavenly father teaches us to pray with confidence. It teaches us to pray with confidence. The gospel of God's grace gives us the confidence to call him Abba, Father. Once more, the catechism is, is instructive, is helpful. Our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a Father able and ready to help us. This is encouraging. That he is able and ready to help us. It gives us confidence in his power. It gives us confidence in his goodness. The Puritan Matthew Pohl says of this preface, Our Father which art in heaven, that it is a manner of addressing, a manner of speaking, of addressing God of speaking our faith both in the power and in the goodness of God, our eyeing him as in heaven speaketh his power, our considering him as our father speaks our faith in his goodness. Dare to call him father. Dare to call him father in your home. Dare to call him Father in our culture.
There was a Roman Catholic liberation theologian. Her name is Mar Maria Clara Benjamin. And she wrote an essay advancing the idea of the maternity, referring to the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, addressing, uh, uh, advancing the idea of the maternity <laughs> of God's fatherhood and the maternity of God's fatherhood. And she goes on to say, the monotheistic God, the monotheistic God understood in patriarchal terms is a distant and sovereign God, invulnerable to the sorrows and sufferings through which the poor of humanity go, silent, silent before the cross of the sun that continues in history. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, this comment is probably based on her observation of the fallen world, based on some of the pathologies found in some, and regrettably, an ever increasing number of earthly fathers. But at this point, Benjamin impugns God's self-revelation of himself. And this is inexcusable. This is inexcusable. I say this without any compunction because as a theologian and others like her of the same persuasion, they dedicate their entire lives studying the scriptures. But we find a primary example that refutes her statement in Jeremiah chapter 3, where God is calling his people to repentance. He's, he's calling them back to himself. And in verse 19 of that chapter, we find clear evidence that God describes himself in terms of fatherhood. Verse 19, I said, how I would set you among my sons. And give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought, and I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Again, we find more evidence in the scriptures, in the New Testament. In the first chapter of the letter to the Ephesians, where God is described in that chapter as the eternal architect, as the eternal planner of salvation. Consequently, the scriptures clearly portray God's disposition. God's disposition as a loving father to us. And it is, and it is described in patriarchal terms. Psalm 103, verse 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Matthew Henry has a profound counter 
to Benjamin's statement. Benjamin clearly shows God as a absentee father, as a distant father. And really, this is the God of deism, a God that is so transcendent, he's not near to his people. Not caring, not loving. But Matthew Henry says, we have access with boldness to him as to a father and have an advocate with the Father and the spirit of adoption. When we come repenting of our sins, we must eye God as a father, as the prodigal did. When we come begging for grace and peace and the inheritance and blessing of sons, it is an encouragement that we come to God, not as an unreconciled, avenging judge, but as a loving, gracious, reconciled father in Christ. So, there to call him Abba, Father. There to call him Abba, Father. Philip Riken captures the ideas here of reverence and approaching God in reverence and approaching God with confidence. He says that our Father is a phrase that captures both the warmth, confidence, and the deep reverence that we have for our Father in heaven. It expresses our intimacy with God while still preserving his dignity. So we see that the secret to the intimacy, personal intimacy to God is secret prayer, solitary prayer, spending time, devoting solitary time with God. Because he is the reward. He has promised to be present in your prayer. This is also captured by Charles Wesley's last stanza of his hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise, where he says, My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. I believe that as we continue to grow in God's word, as we continue to grow in his loving grace, the levees of our soul must burst out. Abba, Father. And the Lord's people say,